Yay old man. Welcome to another episode of Yay, Nay, or Ma, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And it's January. And January means a few different things. Or at least it does when you are recording a podcast like this. Some of the stuff that gets released in January is genuine Oscar contenders. Some of the stuff that gets released in January is stuff that just gets dumped in cinemas in January because the studios have absolutely no faith in them. And when you're recording a podcast like this, January also means we're desperately trying to scrabble to pick up all the last little stragglers from last year's films that we still want to get to. So it's a mixed bag in this week with one potential Oscar contender or what seems to be a legitimate Oscar contender, one film that you can adequately put in the trashy category, as well as some films that just don't quite fit in anywhere or could fit in anywhere anyway. So... In this episode, we will be reviewing the cinematic films Boiling Point, a one-take British independent film, and The 355, an all-guns-blazing, all-female spy action movie. On streaming platforms, we will be reviewing the small British independent film Lapwing. And on Netflix, we have the potential genuine Oscar contender, The Lost Daughter, which is Maggie Gyllenhaal's directorial debut, as well as the Italian true crime film, Yara. So, an eclectic mix in this episode, as there often is, and without further ado, let's get on with today's reviews. Big Screen Boiling Point is a British indie film written and directed by Philip Barantini, who has a long career as an actor. 20 years ago, he was in such TV shows as Dream Team and Band of Brothers. More recently, he's acted in TV shows like Humans and Chernobyl, and he is also the co-star and director of the forthcoming BBC cop drama The Responder, starting Martin Freeman, which is scheduled to debut in a couple of weeks' time. He has one feature film as director in his past, the geezer gangster movie Villain, but one of his earlier short films was a film called Boiling Point. Similarly to many resting actors, Philip Barantini has worked for decades in kitchens. So he wanted to make a film about the hectic life of a chef 
So he tapped up his friend Stephen Graham, who also comes from Philip Barantini's hometown of Liverpool, and Stephen Graham appeared in this 22-minute, one-take short film called Boiling Point in 2019. And eventually Philip Barantini had the idea we could actually do this as a feature film. So that's what he did. Philip Barantini got his friend Stephen Graham to agree to a 90-minute feature film, which is one take, set in a busy night in a London restaurant. As everything surrounding Stephen Graham, the head chef's life, starts falling apart. He's recently split from his wife, so cracks are starting to appear in his professionalism, which is highlighted by a surprise visit at the start of the film by a health inspector. And this one night, everything that can go wrong does go wrong. One of the kitchen porters is two hours late. One of the waitresses is late and misses the briefing because she's got a audition. Somebody's off sick, so one of his minor chefs is in an unfamiliar station. His second-in-command, Vinette Robinson, has been given a very lucrative job offer somewhere else, so can Stephen Graham keep his lieutenant beside him? The manager of the restaurant, Alex Fatum, who also happens to be the daughter of the restaurant's owner, is throwing her weight about without really knowing what she's doing. There's a proposal which is being organised this night. And Stephen Graham's old colleague slash rival, Jason Fleming, has shown up unexpectedly. And both films I saw at the cinema this week had Jason Fleming as the villain, or at least antagonist, which was kind of weird. But anyway, this famous TV chef, Jason Fleming, has unexpectedly shown up with a food critic in tow. So that's suddenly an extra bit of pressure on Stephen Graham. And all of this happens on one night, on a very, very busy night in the run-up to Christmas. So will Stephen Graham survive this hectic, chaotic life in a restaurant over this one night in one take? I am always impressed with one-take cinema. I mean, my top film of 2015 or 16, was it, was the German film Victoria, which was shot in one take, or at least made to look as if it was one take. And the mechanics of getting this to work are extraordinary. Apparently, this was done in one take, and they had four attempts to do it. The plan was they were going to have eight attempts to do it, two attempts a night over the course of four nights, but they started filming in March 2020. So with the pandemic making itself known, they decided that four takes was what they were going to have to go with. And as far as I can tell, the third take is the one that was used. At least that's the one that Stephen Graham likes, because I did watch this last week in a preview with a recorded Q&A attached to it because it turned out that was going to be the only opportunity I was going to have to see Boiling Point in Bath otherwise I was going to have to make a special trip to Bristol so I saw 
boiling point last week with a Q&A. And one of the people at this Q&A was the cinematographer, Matthew Lewis, who is a longtime friend and occasional flatmate of Philip Barantini. And apparently for weeks, if not months before doing this, he was rehearsing all the moves he would need to make wearing the steady cam rig moving in and out of this restaurant. Is it a real-life restaurant in Dalston in East London? So, yeah, I mean, the the choreography, trying to get everything to work, and it, it was one of those films where they had an outline for the script, but basically everybody was improvising. And, yeah, it's very, very impressive. And I like the fact that, unlike a one-take film like Victoria, for example, we are not just following one character. We are mostly following the night and the life of Stephen Graham, but every now and again we go off on tangents. We follow the kitchen porter who showed up two hours late for work, and we know that because we're following him as he's taking out the bins, there's a plot point involving him. At one point we do follow the maitre d' slash restaurant manager, Alice Feetham, and it turns out that she's not just an entitled, bitchy person. You know, my daddy runs this restaurant, therefore I run this restaurant. She's actually completely out of her depth, and we get to see that as we follow her for a moment. All these little stories, all these little individual crises. There's a moment, a very brief moment, where one of the very young chefs in the kitchen I mean, he, he's repeatedly told, look, roll up your sleeves. We don't want you know, your sleeves getting in the sauces. So roll up your sleeves. And when somebody grabs his sleeve and rolls it up, you see he's got self-harming scars on his arms. And you know, the person who, who notices this or it gives him a hug and says, look, we're busy now, but we will talk about this. And that's all we ever see of that little side plot. It's just one little moment, one little scene in this flowing one-take camera move. Everybody has their little individual moments. Everybody has their little individual dramas. But mostly we are following the night and the life of Stephen Graham. We learn pretty early that he is separated from his wife. We suspect early in the film that he's drinking too much. He's definitely letting some of the paperwork slide, which is highlighted by this overly officious health inspector who he sees at the beginning of the film. Things are starting to mount up upon him, and everything that can go wrong will go wrong. I mean, his ex-colleague who's now this famous celebrity chef, has shown up unexpectedly and has an agenda of his own. Early in the film, there's a mention that somebody that night has a nut allergy, and you just know that's going to become relevant by the end of the film. It's like Chekhov's nut allergy. There's uh, somebody who's recently started working there who also happens to be French. So not only is she a little bit unsure as to specifically what she's supposed to be doing, there's a little bit of a language barrier and everything is just piling up and piling up and piling up. And yeah, it's 
fascinating seeing all the different lives. I mean, the little moments we see from each of these individual people in this restaurant who work at this restaurant and a couple of the customers. We see just enough of their lives to have an entire world for them built up. And it's really fascinating having these little moments, picking out these little ideas of all these different people. And it's very, very well done. It would be impressive enough to just have this as a straightforward film. You're just little vignettes here and there of all the people who were in this restaurant in this one night. But the fact it's all strung together as a one-take film, a one-take film that is 92 minutes long, it just makes it all the more impressive. And I was kind of reminded of the film Locke from a few years ago. I mean, Tom Hardy in a car, written and directed by Stephen Knight. Now, I wasn't actually the biggest fan of Locke, I think the dramas and the crises which are dealt with over the phone as we just watch this man drive in his car. I didn't think it particularly worked for me, but I understand why people like this. You know, one location, just one man on screen driving in his car, receiving lots of phone calls. And the way that Stephen Knight, the writer-director, described it, it was, at the start of the film, this man has everything, but over the course of this car journey, as he's taking all these calls, he has nothing. And that was the intention of Locke, and it, it kind of was the intent, the results of Locke, even though I didn't especially like it. But I definitely got the impression that that's what Boiling Point is. We can see that this man, Stephen Graham, is teetering on the edge at the start of the film. By the end of the film, it's all collapsed, it's all gone. I mean, so much stuff has happened, some of it his fault, some of it not his fault, but things have absolutely crashed and burned. And seeing that play out and seeing how simple little things happening when they all happen at the same time, suddenly it's a tsunami and everything goes wrong all at once. And having that play out in front of us, as we are mostly following this one character, Stephen Graham, it's really, really well done. And I was very impressed with the writing and directing of Philip Barantini, the camera work of Matthew Freeman as well. I mean, having to carry a steady cam around a restaurant having to rehearse it so diligently over and over and over again that cannot be underestimated the acting of stephen graham of vinette robinson of the other lieutenant chef ray panthaki who also is one of the producers of the film alice feetham the waitresses lauren Najufo, and ayn rose daly Everybody has their little moments, and it's very, very well done. I was so impressed with Boiling Point. You might still be able to find this at the cinema at time recording, but it has already been released onto streaming platforms. So if you go to your streaming platform of choice, you should be able to find Boiling Point, and I thoroughly recommend it. I was very impressed with, on a technical level, on an acting level, on an emotional level with Boiling Point. It's a very, very good film, and for me, it is a yay. 
The other film I watched at the cinema, or that was released at the cinema this week, is a very different proposition. It's a film called The 355, which takes its name from a somewhat mythical female spy that was employed by George Washington during the Revolutionary War. So this is a kick-ass action spy movie with an entirely female international cast. The MacGuffin of this film is a very simple MacGuffin. A MacGuffin which is often used in this kind of kick-ass action film. It is a drive which can open up any online presence in the world. If you have this little drive, you have control of the internet, basically. How many times have we seen this in cheesy action films? But this little box is being pursued by the CIA, by nefarious black market people, by the Chinese government, by the German government. But a group of rogue female agents who have been, for varying reasons, disavowed by their own governments. American Jessica Chastain, German Diane Kruger, Colombian Penelope Cruz, British agents Lupita Nyong'o and Chinese agent Bingbing Fan all have to team up together in order to try and get this universal key to the internet before the bad guys, mainly, once again, Jason Fleming, get their hands on it. And that's as simple as it gets, really. I mean, this is a very, very basic setup for a very, very basic film. I was intrigued by this film. I saw, oh, look, a a female-led kick-ass spy film. I mean, this kind of kick-ass spy film isn't always my cup of tea. But the fact it was entirely inhabited by female leads and very talented female leads. I mean, all of these people, Jessica Chastain, Lupita Nyong'o, Diane Kruger, Penelope Cruz, not massively familiar with Bing Bing Fan, but I like all these actresses. And seeing them together in a kick-ass action film, that sounded like a good idea, albeit a rather cheesy idea. But when I saw that this film was written and directed by Simon Kinberg, I was dubious. Simon Kinberg is mostly known as a producer and sometime writer of superhero movies. He's acted as producer of the last string of X-Men movies. He produced the Josh Trank Fantastic Four. He produced Logan, which is cool. He actually has an Oscar nomination to his name as one of the producers on The Martian. Simon Kinberg is a respected producer of blockbuster cinema, a somewhat respected writer of blockbuster cinema, but he had to go and direct. In 2019, with Matthew Vaughan off doing other things and abandoning the first-class X-Men franchise he started, and with Brian Singer, for very good reasons, being persona non grata in Hollywood. The last 
sequence in this X-Men franchise needed a director. So Simon Kinberg, the producer and writer, stepped forward and said, OK, I'll direct. And he really shouldn't have. Dark Phoenix, the final franchise in the first class franchise, the one with James McAvoy as Professor X, was an absolute train wreck. Critically and commercially, it did not do well at all. It had incredibly muddied, incredibly frenetic action beats. Some of the actors clearly had checked out long ago. I mean, Jennifer Lawrence is killed very, very quickly in X-Men Dark Phoenix. My guess is that she was contractually obligated to be in it. She'd signed up for X number of sequels to First Class, but she didn't want to do it. So she said, right, I'll be in it, but kill me as soon as you physically can. And that's what happened. The plot of Dark Phoenix was a mess with essentially Oscar-nominated actress, and I think she should have won for Zero Dark Thirty personally, but Oscar-nominated actress Jessica Chastain essentially becomes Basil Exposition in X-Men Dark Phoenix. The only reason she is on screen is to explain what the Phoenix Force is and why Sophie Turner is behaving so weirdly, which is... Weird, because, you know, the Dark Phoenix saga is one of the pivotal stories, not only in X-Men comic history, but comic book history full stop. It is an incredibly seminal piece of work. Dark Phoenix has been attempted to be adapted for the screen twice, and they fucked it up both times. And I think Simon Kinberg was largely responsible for it, because he wrote... X-Men Dark Phoenix, and in places the script is completely incoherent. He also directed Dark Phoenix, and it was far too big a job for him. For somebody who has never directed before, you know, not even directed a short before, to suddenly direct this gigantic blockbuster, he couldn't do it. And the action scenes in Dark Phoenix were incoherent and the big climactic one at the end is so underwhelming, I genuinely didn't think that was going to be the end of the film. I thought, okay, this is a nice enough action scene, you know, an aperitif before the gigantic battle at the end, but, oh shit, this is the end battle? Really? This is so underwhelming. I mean, Simon Kinberg, arguably, he's a good writer, He's probably a, a good producer, or certainly a financially successful producer. This guy cannot direct. He really can't direct. And this is brought forward into the 355. The action scenes in the 355 are so incoherent, so messy. The geography of the space, the geography of the fights, you know, who's fighting who for what reason, so unclear. The way that Penelope Cruz continues being in the film stretches credulity a little bit because she is a psychologist. She is not a field agent, but she is sent because she is friends with somebody who seems to have gone rogue, played by Edgar Ramirez. So Penelope Cruz, on behalf of the Colombian government, is gone to Paris to pick up Edgar Ramirez as a psychologist, not as a field agent. 
she determinedly does not want a gun. She does not want to be, you know, the kick-ass agent. She's perfectly happy being, you know, the psychologist in the background. So the way that she is kept around is a little bit trite. I mean, stretching credulity a little bit too much. And I think ultimately she has a tragic story because by the end of the film, she does pick up a gun. She does use a gun. And it is seen as a triumphant moment, not a tragic moment, which it basically is. I mean, this woman who is the only mother out of these five women, the only person who has a stable home life, the fact that by the end of the film she does use a gun, that's a tragedy, and this film doesn't realise it's a tragedy, because, hey, guns and violence, and we're going to blow up an entire hotel in Shanghai, because, of course, they filmed a lot of this in Shanghai, and you know, Chinese superstar Bing Bing Fan is in it. Lots of Chinese money, I'm guessing, went into this, and I'm sure it got released in China. But it's got some very, very basic stuff. I mean, the MacGuffin being you know, a key to the internet, as if such a thing existed outside of these kinds of cheesy B-movies. The fact that Jessica Chastain and Diane Kruger gradually start to realise that hang on a minute, we're the same person. We have exactly the same hang-ups. We have exactly the same personality types. It's just Diane Kruger embraces it at the beginning of the film and Jessica Chastain is forced to embrace it by the end of the film, you know, being the lone wolf and all that kind of stuff. The idea that having a home life is complicated. I mean, Penelope Cruz is desperate to get back to Colombia with her husband and two kids. Lupita Nyong'o has a very stable, very cute boyfriend back in London who she is desperate to get back to, but the mission must go forward and we must shoot everybody in sight and we must blow stuff up. Or we must go to Shanghai and Morocco and Paris. It's, it's a very, very basic B-move. And it could have been fun, but you know, Simon Kinberg, as both writer and director, I just don't think manages to pull it off. I mean, this is one of those films which is deliberately and overtly setting up sequels. We're in a position by the end of the film where sequels are certainly coming, if this is a success, which critically it has not been a success. I'm not sure about commercially, but... They're trying to start a franchise with this film. I mean, this concept of the 355, this semi-mythical female spy that worked for George Washington, is only introduced right at the end of the film. So they're clearly trying to set up sequels. But it's just very, very basic storytelling. I mean, the fact that Sebastian Stan is in this, because you know it's a recognisable face in Sebastian Stan you know that he is more than he seems to be we have Edgar Ramirez who actually isn't in the film very much at all and we also have Jason Fleming as this nefarious arms dealer in the background I mean just such a weird experience having two cinematic films in a row where Jason Fleming is the antagonist but anyway 
these male characters in the background are definitely in the background. And in principle, the 355 is something to support, but it's just so generic, so basic. It ends up ultimately being kind of boring. I mean, if the action scenes had been better and better shot, and we could understand the action scenes, it might have overcome a lot of this film's shortcomings. But the action scenes aren't good, and therefore the shortcomings of the rest of the film pile up upon each other, and I just can't be bothered recommending the 355. I mean, it's brainless, stupid, basic action movie stuff. And if that's what you want, fine. But for me, the 355 available in cinemas is a nay. Home movies. Lapwing is a British independent film directed by Philip Stevens and written by Laura Turner both of whom are making their feature-length debuts, and both of whom have a series of shorts in their past. It is set in 1555, where Queen Mary has just enacted the Egyptian Act, banishing all Egyptians, gypsies, from the land, and anybody caught aiding gypsies will be subject to execution, and the gypsies themselves have a short window of time in which to leave England, or they too will be executed. On the bleak Lincolnshire coast, a group of religious fanatics led by Emmett J. Scanlon is eking out an existence as salt farmers, trying to keep their religious community together and worship God as they see fit. It's a little bit too early in history for this term to be accurate, but essentially they are Puritans. And Emmett J. Scanlon has this almost cult-like group around him, made up of his wife and his wife's sister, played by Hannah Douglas, who has a stammer so severe she is functionally mute, and when she tries to speak, she screeches like a lapwing. So, Emmett J. Scanlon and this group, including his sister-in-law, Hannah Douglas, agree to help a family of gypsies live alongside them on these Lincolnshire salt flats, waiting for a ship which will be coming and will take the gypsies away from England. But until then, they have to live side by side. And this mute woman, I mean, she's probably late teens, early 20s, Hannah Douglas, starts a silent relationship with the son of this gypsy family, Sebastian de Souza, and this relationship between the gypsy boy and the mute English girl causes friction between these two communities and might be the source of ending these two communities. This is, I think, a fascinating little film. 
having a look on IMDb at the reviews of this film, it's not always a good idea. They seem to be evenly split between 10 star reviews, which were almost certainly written by friends and family of the people who made the film, and one star reviews who are incredibly harsh about this film. And I don't think either of those things is justified. I think this is a good film, in places a great film, and certainly a film I think that is worth watching. It has a melancholy to it. It has a literalisation of the fact that throughout so much of history, so many people were voiceless. Hannah Douglas cannot communicate, she cannot speak, and therefore she cannot speak up. With Emmett J. Scanlon, her brother-in-law and the leader of this religious community, who is eking out an existence, living in tents and waiting for the glory of the Lord, and the money that they are getting off this gypsy family, I mean, the extortion, essentially, that they are carrying out on this gypsy family, will hopefully actually be able to allow them to build stuff to actually make a house make a community instead of just living in tents on these lincolnshire marshes but he has this fervor he has this belief in the word of god and a belief that the kingdom of heaven is coming and his is the way to get it essentially he's a cult leader he is using his charisma and his control to gather these people around him to make himself the leader. But as he gets more and more erratic, that control starts to slip. And the people around him, the families around him, including his own wife, start questioning his authority. And he also starts drinking. And this is a chicken and egg situation. I mean, is he drinking, therefore he is starting to lose control? Or is he losing control? therefore he is drinking. I mean, either way, it is a portrait of a man whose dreams, whose ambitions are crumbling before him. It becomes more and more apparent throughout the course of this film that this community is going to start crumbling, is going to start coming to an end. He no longer has the power over the people around him. And how does he deal with that? And the answer is he doesn't deal with it very well. And the ways that he tries to control his sister-in-law, Hannah Douglas, I mean, this mute girl, and the ways that the community around him, or you know, the couple of families around him, observe this and, to a large degree, disapprove of it, despite, you know, he is our leader, yet he is treating his sister-in-law, this mute girl, so appallingly that we cannot really support him anymore. And that lack of authority, the losing of that authority, is the crux of this film. The fact that this mute girl, Hannah Douglas, starts spending time with this gypsy boy, Sebastian D'Souza, and probably for the first time, fantasies of romance fantasies of sexuality start entering the mind start entering the consciousness 
of Hannah Douglas, her awakening in more ways than one, is triggered by this gypsy family sharing their speech, sharing these salt flats. And the interactions between these two young people, which starts out relatively innocently and gradually gets more and more intimate, I mean, it's really sweet to see uh, and seeing the empowering way that Hannah Douglas goes about this. You know, she is voiceless, she is powerless, but in this particular situation, she's starting to gain more and more confidence and more and more belief in herself. And that's good to see. I mean, honestly, I would have liked to see a little bit more of it. In the grand scheme of things, I think the central relationship in this film is the one between Hannah Douglas and her brother-in-law, Emmett J. Scanlon, rather than Hannah Douglas and this gypsy boy, Sebastian D'Souza. And I think arguably that balance should have been redressed. I would have liked to see more interactions, more happy interactions between these two young people. There's also some very, very harsh events which happen in the middle of the film. And I think a, a bit more fatalism would have been appropriate. I think the attitude that, well, I guess this is my life now, would have brought home the themes of this film even more strongly. But what we get is a psychologically rich examination of power and control and what happens when that starts to slip. And I think it works brilliantly. I, I think this is a film I do recommend. I think if you're on this film's wavelength, it is the kind of low-budget British film which does need support and does need attention. And I aim to give it to it because I do think that Lapwing is worth watching. It is currently available through streaming platforms. And as far as I'm concerned, Lapwing is a very high meh. Netflix and chill. The Lost Daughter is another one of the prestige Oscar potential films that has been released onto Netflix over recent weeks. It is the directorial debut of Maggie Gyllenhaal, even though she doesn't appear as an actress in the film, but she also adapted the screenplay from the novel by Eleanor Ferrante. The Lost Daughter is actually the fourth of Eleanor Ferrante's so-called Neapolitan novels, the first two of which have been adapted onto HBO slash Sky as My Brilliant Friend. But Maggie Gyllenhaal decided to make her directorial debut adapting the fourth book in this series. And it has to be said, I've looked at the plot synopsis on Wikipedia and even allowing for the fact that Maggie Gyllenhaal adapted the fourth book in a series, which the author, Elena Ferrante, has described as one gigantic novel in four parts. It seems a very, very loose adaptation, but regardless, it is still a fascinating film, in which Olivia Coleman plays a middle-aged literature professor who specialises in Italian literature, 
who is going on a beach holiday on a Greek island. As she is soaking up the sun and casually working on her latest batch of Italian translations, she starts observing the life of a young mother who is also staying at this beach resort played by Dakota Johnson who has a three, four-year-old daughter, maybe a five-year-old daughter, but a young daughter. And she is part of a large, loud, somewhat obnoxious group of people, the matriarch of whom is the pregnant Dagmara Dominchik. And these are a mixture of people from Queens, New York, and Greece, and it gradually emerges throughout the course of the film that they're essentially the Greek mob. So, Olivia Coleman observes from a distance the seemingly unhappy Dakota Johnson and her young daughter, and this makes Olivia Coleman flash back to her own past when she was a mother to two young daughters and is being played by Jesse Buckley. And the ways that Dakota Johnson in the present day seems dissatisfied with her life makes Olivia Coleman reflect on her own dissatisfaction in her own past and a strange bond, a strange connection forms between these two random English-speaking women on this Greek island. And this is, uh, as I said, a somewhat loose adaptation because as far as I can tell, the protagonists of the novel by the pseudonymous author Eleanor Ferrante and it is apparently a great literary mystery who Eleanor Ferrante actually is, but regardless... In this fourth book by Eleanor Ferrante, the protagonists are Italian, and we've already seen them through three other books, and it's set in Italy, in Naples specifically. So, yeah, a very loose adaptation, but a very interesting one. Which I think asks the uncomfortable question about how even in the 21st century, even in the modern day, motherhood is seen as the ultimate use for a woman. One of the first things that most people ask Olivia Coleman when they see her, you know, this sole woman on this Greek beach holiday, it has to have been massive tax breaks in order for this film to have been filmed in Greece. But anyway, this Greek island holiday the first question that most people ask Olivia Coleman is, do you have children? Where are your children? The fact that Dakota Johnson is a dissatisfied mother with a absent and sometimes boorish husband and a young daughter she doesn't get on with. The fact that Dakota Johnson's sister-in-law, this loud, obnoxious woman from Queens, Dagmara Domenchik, is a woman in her 40s who has finally got pregnant herself and is just about to drop. Motherhood is a constant presence, a constant theme of this film. And the fact that 
this little girl of Dakota Johnson loses her doll. And throughout the entire course of the film, the only concern that this little girl and Dakota Johnson has is, we need to find this doll. And Olivia Coleman's just taken it. Olivia Coleman is using this literally and metaphorically as an avatar for her own past, when she was the mother to two small girls and had a similar doll, which, and the fate of these dolls is all wrapped up in the psychology of this film. And apparently in the original novel, these dolls are very, very important. But it's more a metaphor here. And Olivia Coleman at one point describes herself as an unnatural mother. And I think that is the key of what this film is trying to do. The idea that for some women, motherhood is not only not enough, it's actually a burden. It's actually something which puts your life on a different path than the one you wanted. And in the past with Jessie Buckley and her husband, Jack Farthing, and you know, her two small children. At one point, they meet an Italian hiker played by Alba Rohrwacker. And I'm not sure if this was deliberate, but I mean, because Alba Rohrwacker is a very respected Italian actress, most often starring in her sister Alice Rohrwacker's films, but she's got a great career of her own. Alba Rohrwacker is actually the narrator of the Italian miniseries my brilliant friend. I mean, whether that's an Easter egg or whether they just cast a recognisable Italian actress as a cameo, I'm not sure. But the interactions that Alba Rohrwacker, you know, an Italian woman, and interacting with Jesse Buckley, who professionally translates English poetry into Italian, and, you know, finding somebody who Jesse Buckley can connect to on that level is really fascinating and it is seems to be one of the spurs that eventually leads jesse buckley to make a drastic decision which olivia coleman in the present day is still dealing with and it, it's really fascinating to see i think it's interesting that whenever the idea of motherhood or her children comes up Olivia Coleman starts speaking with a Yorkshire accent, and she says, yeah, where are you from? I'm originally from Leeds. Well, Shipley. When her children are brought up, her accent starts coming through. And in the past, Jessie Buckley also has this Yorkshire accent, which is an odd choice because the Yorkshire accent is one which is shared by neither Olivia Coleman or Jessie Buckley. Olivia Coleman's from Norwich, and I had absolutely no idea that Jesse Buckley was Irish. The first time I saw Jesse Buckley was in the British film set on Jersey, Beast, and I instantly thought, who the fuck is that? She's brilliant. And then quickly after that, I saw her in the miniseries version that the BBC did of The Woman in White, and she's been in things like I'm thinking of ending things which I didn't like, but she was good in it. And she had an extraordinary accent in the last series of Fargo. I don't think I've ever seen Jesse Buckley act with an Irish accent. And yet, 
I checked. I mean, I've seen you know interviews on YouTube, and she she's Irish. So yeah, her accent work is impeccable because I never ever guessed. But yeah, I find it interesting that both Jesse Buckley and Olivia Coleman, when they are talking about their children, revert back to the Yorkshire accents they had when they were young. And I do wonder if international audiences will pick up on that. But regardless, I think it's very notable that it's almost a psychological tell that both Olivia Coleman and Jesse Buckley revert to this Yorkshire accent. All around, it's a fascinating proposition. I actually think this film would make a rather interesting double bill with Tully, the Diablo Cody-written, Charlie's Thrawn starring film from a few years back, which I maintain Charlie's Theron should have got an Oscar for Tully, and she wasn't even nominated. But that too was a film which dealt with the harsh realities of motherhood and how for some people it is definitely more a burden than a joy. And what happens when you are observed as being a bad mother, or as Livia Common describes herself, an unnatural mother. The fact that in the past Jesse Buckley goes off and has an affair with Peter Sarsgaard, the husband of Maggie Gyllenhaal. And I think it's an interesting situation. I mean, filmmaking is such a weird situation that here we have Maggie Gyllenhaal directing her husband, Peter Sarsgaard, and a significant chunk of Peter Sarsgaard's appearance in this film is a very intense sex scene with Jesse Buckley, directed by Peter Sarsgaard's wife, which was odd. But yeah, here is Jesse Buckley, who wants her own life, wants you know, professional recognition, wants emotional recognition, and she's just not getting it from her husband and children. And in the present day, Olivia Coleman is still dealing with the consequences of the decisions she made when she was Jesse Buckley and she had a five-year-old and a seven-year-old and wasn't happy. And yeah, the examination of motherhood and the expectations of motherhood and femininity at a base level is very, very interesting in this film. I do think that Maggie Gyllenhaal has a great future as a director. I mean, there's really interesting uses of extreme close-ups. At certain points towards the beginning of the film, we are seeing close-ups of Dakota Johnson and her daughter that are so extreme, so close, that you, for a moment, don't realise that some of those close-ups are actually Jesse Buckley and her children in Olivia Coleman's past. We don't realise that the protagonists have changed. They're that close. And the ways that we observe Olivia Coleman working through her past, working through her traumas, the way that close-ups use the, the expressions that are presented, the fact that Olivia Coleman keeps this doll and, and cares for this doll, despite the fact that Dakota Johnson is absolutely desperate to find it, 
Olivia Coleman keeps the doll and puts all her emotions and all her, her traumas into this doll. And the way that is presented to us on screen is really, really fascinating. And the interactions that Olivia Coleman has with the caretaker for this holiday let she's got, Ed Harris, who works for this you know, Greek mob family that Doug Morrow, Dominic, and Dakota Johnson married into. The interactions between Ed Harris and Olivia Coleman become really interesting, and, and talking about his background as a bad father. I mean, parenthood is such a big part of this, and a really fascinating part of it, and all around, I think this is an excellent, excellent film. I think Olivia Coleman is expected to get a Best Actress nomination for this, and she will deserve it. Personally, I think she's better than Kristen Stewart in Spencer, which seems to be the favourite. I think Jessie Buckley deserves a nomination as Best Supporting Actress, but that's less likely to happen. I think Maggie Gyllenhaal deserves consideration as Best Director, although I think she's more likely to get a nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay. But either way, this is a remarkably assured debut from Maggie Gyllenhaal. As I repeatedly say, I'm always fascinated when somebody steps behind the camera. And Maggie Gyllenhaal has done it with aplomb. I think this is a remarkable debut from her, and it's a film I really, really liked. Mostly for the performances, particularly Olivia Coleman and Jesse Buckley, but I definitely think this is worth watching, and I definitely think it is worthy of Oscar consideration, serious Oscar consideration. And for me, The Lost Daughter, available on Netflix, is a definite yay. Next up is the Netflix film Yara, which is an Italian true crime drama based on a real-life case that happened in 2011 in the Bergamo region of Italy. A 13-year-old girl, Yara Gambirazio, went around the corner to her rhythmic gymnastics lesson to drop off a boombox, which was needed because the studios had broken down, and she never returned. Almost instantly, a female prosecutor in the Bergamo region, played in the film by Isabella Raganese, starts an investigation, but the investigation doesn't go well. So Isabella Raganese makes the radical decision for 2011 to start a gigantic trawl of the Bergamo region and screen everybody's DNA because there is a DNA sample associated with the body of Yara Gambarazio when it is eventually found. So if we can find who this DNA belongs to, then we can solve the case. And this is a process which takes a very, very long time, during which this female prosecutor is lambasted by the local politicians and the local media. She's just not up to the job. She's a woman. She shouldn't be in charge of this important case. 
So the misogyny of the justice system is brought to bear, but eventually, finally, after four years of investigation, the murderer of Yara Gambarazio is brought to justice, thanks to this prosecutor and her diligent hard work. This did look interesting when I saw the trailer for it on Netflix. But I quickly realised that this was a very specific type of true crime movie. This is the type of story which more often than not ends up as a miniseries on television. I mean, in fact, I've only just finished watching one called Four Lives, which dealt with a homosexual serial killer in Barking in East London eerily played by Stephen Merchant. I mean, I didn't know he had that kind of threat in him, but Stephen Merchant has the serial killer and Sheridan Smith as the mother of one of the victims who refused to let the police get away with their completely incompetent investigation. I mean, Barking and Dagenham police have at least three bodies on their hands in that particular case, but Regardless, I mean, that's the kind of film that Yara ended up being. It is just the story. It is just the true crime narrative with some quirks and some ideas. I mean, here we have a female prosecutor who drives around on a motorbike, working her way through a man's world and sticking the course despite the press and a one particular politician being completely against her. I mean, she's definitely not up to the job. We need a man in charge of this, despite the fact that in her last job she was in the south of Italy and prosecuted the mafia. So, yeah, she's up for the job, but it's just a really, really hard investigation. There's also stuff about racism. There's a nearby building site which becomes involved and people start asking questions. Oh, well, there's a hell of a lot of Moroccans who work on this building site. I mean, surely one of these dirty foreign Muslim Moroccans killed our sweet, innocent 13-year-old dancer or rhythmic gymnast. I mean, rhythmic gymnastics is one of those weird sports that I know that it takes incredible dedication, it takes incredible skill, it takes incredible strength, but it just looks silly. I mean, I'm sorry, it just looks silly. It's the same as synchronised swimming, but. Anyway, this young 13-year-old girl is a rhythmic gymnast. And surely one of these dirty Moroccans killed her. But the way that is presented and the way that Isabella Raganese has to constantly fight back, has to say, look, slow and steady wins the race. We are doing stuff. We have to be methodical about this. It just takes a very, very long time, particularly when it depends on DNA technology in 2011, which was not fast. As a piece of filmmaking, it has the tendency, which so many real-life stories fall afoul of, in the fact that two people have a conversation which contains information that both of them know, but the audience needs to know it, so they start talking to each other about it for no reason. I mean, the one mildly interesting quirk in the filmmaking of this film is the fact that every now and again, when Isabella Raganese is reading the diary of young Yara, 
Yara herself manifests in front of her and starts talking to Isabella Ragnese in the words of this story. So she is literally being haunted by this case and will not let it go. And yeah, that's fine. I mean, it's a standard, reasonably well-made, reasonably interesting true crime story. It's the kind of stuff that would feel completely appropriate as a miniseries on television. It just so happens it's a film that's ended up on Netflix. It's perfectly solid, perfectly fine, perfectly interesting film. But that's all it is. So for me, Yara is a solid, unspectacular meh. Coming attractions. There isn't actually a great deal of action this week at the cinema. Mostly this is because all of the screen times are being taken up by the reboot slash sequel slash whatever the hell it is of Scream, which I have absolutely no interest in, so I'm not going to be watching that. But a lot of films seem to have been deliberately trying to avoid that, so not a lot else is actually being released. But one of the weird byproducts of this is I do have access to a film which is playing at my local Odeon Multiplex, which I absolutely did not anticipate playing at my local Odeon Multiplex. And since I can just walk into it for free with my Limitless card, I may as well check it out. It is the new film from Thai director Apichatpong Wirasethakul, Memoria, which I wasn't all that interested in seeing, and I was very, very glad when it wasn't listed as one of the 15-film longlist for International Feature Oscar this coming year, which it had every anticipation of being, because I'm just not a fan of Apichatpong Wirasethakul. What little of his I've seen is just weird. I think he is the kind of art house director that gives art house directors a bad name. His film, Uncle Boon Me, Who Can Recall His Past Lives, is one of the strangest films ever to be given the palm door at Cannes. I mean, this is a film, I mean, Uncle Boon Me is a film where in the middle of the film, out of nowhere, we are suddenly back in time where a medieval princess wanders into the jungle or gets carried on a palanquin into the jungle and then has sex with a catfish. And that just happens in the middle of Uncle Boon Me. And this is already a film where a dead wife has materialised out of thin air. The son of the main character has come back out of the forest and has been turned into some kind of hairy Sasquatch-like monster because he had sex with a demon in the forest. And this is just accepted. I mean, surreal is a term which is often I've used. I mean, I'm guilty of doing it myself, saying that something is surreal. The filmmaking of Apichatpong Wirasethakul is genuinely surreal. And that looks like what his new film, Memoria, is. Despite the fact he is from Thailand, he made Memoria in Colombia. And it was Colombia who submitted it to the Oscars. And despite being directed by a Thai and made in Colombia, it stars Tilda Swinton. 
as a woman visiting Colombia who starts hearing a sound in the middle of the night, an all-pervasing, all-encompassing sound, and she tries to investigate it and work out where it's coming from, what it is. And that seems to be what this film is about. I mean, I was not eager to see Memoria, but, like I said, I can now see it for free, just walking into my local Odeon with my Limitless card, so I may as well, particularly since there's very, very little else out at the cinema that I'm interested in seeing. The only other film which is technically a cinematic film released this week, which I will be seeing, is the new Sky Cinema release, Save the Cinema. This is being released directly onto Sky Cinema, Sky Premiere, and I do believe it is getting a cinematic release, a small cinematic release as well. And it's one of those plucky underdog British feel-good films in the same vein as things like Calendar Girls or Brastoff or The Full Monty, that kind of thing telling the true story of a woman in Carmarthen in South Wales who was so desperate to save her local cinema from developers in 1993 that she somehow persuaded Steven Spielberg to hold a premiere of Jurassic Park in this small cinema in Carmarthen. And apparently... This is a true story. There was a simultaneous premiere, UK premiere, of Jurassic Park in Leicester Square in the West End and this small cinema in Carmarthen. So, yeah, that sounds like a, a delightful Triumph Over Adversity British-type film. And since it's on Sky Cinema, I may as well check that out as well. There are a couple of Netflix new releases which somewhat intrigue me. There's one that looks like absolute trash and is designed to look like absolute trash. It's called Brazen and it stars Alyssa Milano, which is, I guess, a stamp of quality. But this film, Brazen, is based on a novel by the enormously prolific and enormously successful romance novelist Nora Roberts. To the extent that there is a whole string of movies on the Lifetime channel, which are Laura Roberts's X. You know, there's one set in Alaska, there's one set in Montana, that kind of thing. So she is a very, very successful romance novelist. But this film, Brazen, which is based on one of Nora Roberts's books, looks very, very sleazy. As Alyssa Milano plays a successful novelist, whose sister gets murdered as she's working as a cam girl. She had a secret life as a cam girl and got murdered because of it. So Alyssa Milano insists that the hunky detective who is on the case allow her to work the case as well, and she seems to eventually go undercover as a cam girl. So that could be very, very trashy, but... Why not? It looks kind of fun. I mean, I've got so much other quality stuff to watch, but I am still intrigued by Brazen. There's also a much more interesting film, a film which seems to have a genuine point to make. It's an Indonesian film called Photocopier, 
which documents a young woman who has just been given a scholarship to attend a prestigious university, but soon before she is about to take up this scholarship, she goes to a party, wakes up the next morning with no memory of what happened, and social media posts that happened on this party mean she loses her scholarship, and she then goes on a quest to find out exactly what happened, and if anything was done to her, which there's every possibility there was, how is she going to solve this? And it looks to me like an indictment of the very, very conservative and very, very Muslim environment which Indonesia is. Basically slut-shaming anybody who steps even the remotest part out of line. And that could be a very interesting, very powerful film. So I do want to check out the Indonesian film Photocopier. And there's also something released on Netflix which is in a bit of a grey area, because I'm not exactly sure if you can classify it as a feature film. It seems to have been presented as such, but it is a project called The House, which is an anthology film, or possibly simply three shorts, all made by award-winning stop-motion animators, all revolving around a house. I think it might even be the same house, but these are stop-motion animated shorts all being combined together into one presentation, or it, it seems that that is the case. And that looks absolutely fascinating. I mean, whether it is an anthology film or whether it is simply three shorts strung together, either way, I am fascinated by it, and it probably qualifies for review on this podcast. So I will be checking out the stop-motion animated anthology film slash collection of shorts, The House. I still need to catch up with a few things that I still have left over from last year. I need to watch the COVID documentary, The First Wave, because it has ended up on the 15 film long list for documentary feature. Not really looking forward to that, despite the fact it is directed by the very good documentarian Matthew Heinemann. But I already saw the Chinese version of this story 127 days last year, and that was harrowing enough. And I think the first wave is going to be equally harrowing, but there's every chance it will get an Oscar nomination, so I do need to check that out. There's also a few independent films which I still want to check out. The American indie drama about rape, What She Said. Daniel Brawl directing himself in the German film Next Door, and the two-handed film which looks very, very intriguing, The Great and Terrible Day of the Lord. And honestly, I am still very, very interested in the Amazon Prime film Queen Pins, which follows two housewives who set up a scam revolving around coupons you know the little things you clip out of the newspaper and save you know 20 cents on bleach or whatever 
but somehow they turned that into a scam which was eventually worth millions. And they're being chased down by an officious postal inspector played by Paul Walter Hauser. So, yeah, Queen Pings looks kind of silly, but I am intrigued by that, so I do still want to check that out as well. On Netflix, I still want to check out the mildly Oscar Beatty film The Starling, where Melissa McCarthy and Chris O'Dowd are dealing with grief with the help of ex psychologist Kevin Klein. And there's also the spooky films which were released around Halloween last year Night Books and Night Teeth, the German hunting humans for sport film Prey. And also the teen weepy, or that seems to be the genre which most accurately describes, mixtape about a teenage girl who tries to connect with her dead mother by reconstructing a broken mixtape that her mother left her. So I think that's all the stragglers from the end of last year, which I'm still intending to check out. And a brief side note that one of the things which I actually did this past week is watch a preview of Kenneth Branagh's new film, Belfast. I looked ahead at the schedule, this is due out in a couple of weeks, and that's going to be a very, very busy week at the cinema, so I had an opportunity to watch this preview of the film Belfast, again for free using my Odeon Limitless card, So I took that opportunity, and I have to say that Belfast is absolutely brilliant. I fully expect it to be one of my top 10 films of 2022, even though it was the fifth film I saw at the cinema this year. It's outstanding, and I thoroughly recommend Belfast when that comes out in a couple of weeks, and there will be a full review of that in a couple of episodes' time. I think the time has come to simply cancel the rest of the four plays for 2021 since I only made it up to July and I just haven't found the time to do it, particularly since I have another project in the works, which is somewhat connected to this podcast. And isn't it always the way at my busiest time of year when I should be working on my end of year shows? I get hit by inspiration and I need to spend a lot of time on a labour-intensive project related to this podcast, which I am past the way through doing and is going to take a lot of my time. So that combined with the top 10 films of the year show and my personal raw footage awards, which I actually probably should start seriously recording by now, but the full play is just going to have to get cancelled. I mean, maybe they'll come back at some point, but this extra project might take up a lot of extra time. So that's a teaser for something which might well be coming down the pipes into this online sphere which I have created. So keep your ears and eyes peeled for that. But in the meantime, we still have lots of films to review in this style. So a reminder that this is still prestige season, award bait season, so there were two films that I classified as a yay in this episode. Probably still available at cinemas, but definitely also now available on streaming platforms, 
boiling point is a one take film which is excellent using its one take philosophy to tell many different stories instead of just telling one showing the ins and outs quite literally of a busy working kitchen and the characters who work within it showing gradual build up of tension and drama until uh, we have the explosion of material i think this is a gimmicky film but a film which absolutely works and is anchored by an excellent performance from stephen graham so i do thoroughly recommend boiling point which if you can't find at the cinema you will be able to find on streaming platforms and i also strongly recommend the lost daughter on netflix Maggie Gyllenhaal is an actress who I think has a brilliant future as a director if that's something she wants to pursue. The acting in this film is excellent from Olivia Coleman, from Jesse Buckley, from Dakota Johnson, from Ed Harris, from Dagmara Domicic. All around the performances are excellent. It's psychologically rich and psychologically dense doesn't necessarily goes in the directions you expect but in exploring the history of motherhood the history of femininity through the various characters in this film and what it means to be a mother and how to be a mother in the modern day i mean i do think this would make an excellent double feature with tully i think it is a more direct and a more philosophical take than Tully but it it does show the traumas of simple motherhood or less than simple motherhood and it's excellent so yeah I fully expect it to be a contender at the Oscars not least for Olivia Colman as best leading actress and the film itself is well worth checking out so on Netflix The Lost Daughter is also a yay So all that remains for me to say is this has been Yay, Nay or Meh, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. And I'll see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure.